I would like you to take a Bible and find 1 Samuel 16. And while you turn to that passage, I just want to read you the third verse of the hymn we just sang. It says, I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, it will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. That's a pretty good description of what we're trying to do in this study of David's life. We talked about this last week. We talked about the different ways that we can approach David's life. We could study him as a hero, but the problem is he did a lot of unheroic things. We could study him as a villain, but he was clearly a man after God's own heart. We can look at him as an example, not necessarily good or bad, but just sort of what can we learn from his life, and there's value there. But the main thing we want to do in this study is see how the David story points us forward to Jesus. And in that sense, the old, old story of David is the new story of Jesus because the Bible is one story. And you see these same ideas, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, and we're trying to trace that through as we look at David's life. So our passage, we're going to read it in a few minutes, 1 Samuel 16. Let me start with this. How many of you have ever found yourself in a situation that could be described as you being on the outside looking in? Just feeling like I, I'm, not, I'm not in, in that situation or with those people or in this circumstance. I'm sort of the outsider wishing I was in, wanting to be in, but I'm on the outside and I'm looking in. Maybe this for you was the, the classic example of kickball in fourth grade. And you were the last person picked. And there was an odd number of kids at school that day. And so the teams were even. And there you were left. And you thought, well, this is great. I don't have a team. I'm on the outside looking in. Maybe of all of your friends as you grew up, you were the last one to get married. And you found yourself thinking, well, this is great. All my friends are married. And now I'm not married. Or maybe you were the last one to have kids or the last of your peer group to have grandkids. You can think of a number of different situations uh, that would, would fall in this idea of you're on the outside looking in. I'll tell you one quick story from my life. And I think I've shared this with you at some point. In college, um, I was an accounting major. And the end of high school and the beginning of college, I worked at my church as a custodian part-time. Uh, cleaning, painting, maintenance stuff, all sorts of different things like that. And as I got into this accounting degree, I started to think, you know, I should probably get some kind of accounting job. If that's what I'm going to school for, I should probably learn how to do something related to accounting. And I didn't really know what to do. And I thought, I'll go get a job at a bank. And so if you live in Amarillo, Texas, the bank is Amarillo National Bank. They're on every corner. Everybody uses them. You might as well not even talk about other banks. I mean, this is the place to go. And so when in, in my, you know, college-age mind I thought I need a bank job, I thought, well, I'll, I'll apply at Emerald National Bank. And so I found a job opening for a, a teller position at a branch that I wanted to work at. And I'll be honest with you, I was feeling pretty confident because the first reference on my application was one of the main VPs for Emerald National Bank, and he went to my church and he really liked my mom. My mom was a children's director, and he was a leader in the children's ministry, and he thought she was great. 
And I put his name down, and the minute I put his name down, I thought, that's it. I'm on the end. Like, I am getting this job. There's no way anyone's going to get it over me. They're going to see his name, and they're going to call him, and I'm, I'm in. And so I was excited. And uh, I dressed as nice as a college kid could dress. And I showed up as early as a college kid can show up. And I went up to the whatever floor the interview was on at the big downtown building. And I walked in the room, and immediately I knew I wasn't getting the job. Because in the room of people interviewing for that position was the vice president that I knew his daughter was in the room. And I thought, well, I should just walk out of here because I'm not getting this job. There's zero chance I am now the outsider. I thought I was the insider. I thought I had the inside track here. And things changed, and I was on the outside looking in. We have phrases to describe this sort of situation. Maybe you say, I'm just waiting on a call. I'm just waiting. Waiting on that phone call. That's going to change everything. But for now, I'm just waiting. I'm, I'm left holding the bag, or I'm left standing at the altar. That could be literal or proverbial. Uh, I'm left out in the cold, or to steal a phrase from 1 Samuel 16, I'm out taking care of the sheep. I'm on the outside looking in on this situation. And I think you'll see what I mean when we read this story about David. Uh, David was out with the sheep when Samuel came to town. And everyone was sort of around at some point in time except David. And he's just left out doing a low-level job that a low-level person would take care of. And no one even thought to bring him in. So he's clearly on the outside looking in. I like how Eugene Peterson spins this. He says, The choice of David, the runt and the shepherd, to be the anointed, to be a sign and a representative of God's working presence in human life and history, is surely intended to convey a sense of inclusion to all ordinary men and women, the plain folk the undistinguished in the eyes of their neighbors, those lacking social status and peer recognition, which is to say the overwhelming majority of all who have lived on this old planet Earth. This is a story of a guy on the outside looking in, somebody that can relate to your experience of being on the outside looking in, who God then brought very much in rather than out. So let's start by reading. 1 Samuel 16, we'll read the first 13 verses. And as we read this, I just want to acknowledge it's always challenging to just jump into the middle of the biblical narrative. And I'm so tempted to back up and say, if, if you're going to make sense of these verses, you've got to read the previous chapter. Uh, and you really need to read the one before that. And you really need to go back to the previous book. And we probably should cover the book of Judges and back to the Exodus. And you get the idea. We're just jumping in in the middle here. So this is 1 Samuel 16, 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I'll show you what you shall do. You shall anoint 
for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling. And they said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, he had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. It's the Word of God. Several things I want you to see as we think through this story When I think of this story of David being anointed, uh, I just instinctively think of some sort of uh, children's Sunday school coloring page, and there's a big crowd of people, and there's this descending line of boys so you can see who's the oldest and the biggest, and down they go, and everyone in Bethlehem is gathered watching, and everybody knows what's going on. Some of that may be accurate and faithful to the text. Some of that may not be. And it's always challenging when you've got an idea of a Bible story in your head to actually go back and to think about what does the text actually say and what does it not say that I might be assuming it says. Maybe there's places I've filled in the gaps that the text doesn't actually speak. And so we're just going to try to walk through this and think about this, this episode in David's life tonight. First thing I want you to see is this. The Lord's call to Samuel came... When Samuel's ministry as a prophet judge was thought to be over, the Lord called Samuel to this task when the general idea is that he was retired as the last judge and as a prophet in Israel. He was a guy that had been put out to pasture, so to speak. His his working days were behind him. The big monumental events in his life had already taken place and he had sort of moved on to a different stage in life. And you know as well as I do that we tend to remember people by what they did last, right? Think about uh, important political leaders at times, important athletes. We just have this tendency to remember sort of the last things that they did as maybe more important than the rest of their life. And for Samuel, that was not really a great thing because two of the major things he did towards the end of his life 
were one. First Samuel 8, he tried to make his sons judges when it was time for him to retire. Like he saw the writing on the wall and he knew, I can't do this forever. Somebody needs to be the leader in Israel. Who better than my boys? Well, a lot of people better than your boys because your boys were godless, worthless scumbags. And that's something that people would have remembered. Do you remember Samuel? Man, what a great guy. What a prophet. What a judge. But you remember kind of weird when he tried to put his knucklehead sons in charge? And Israel was not in a great spiritual condition at that moment in their history. But they looked at that situation and said, Samuel, this is a bad idea. You can't put these guys in charge. So people remembered that. People also remembered, oh, Samuel, he's the guy that anointed Saul. That turned out real well. You're the guy that crowned him, essentially, as king. And you know that the people were involved in in that process as well, but once there's blame to go around, nobody takes that blame themselves, and you pass it up as far up the, the food chain as you can, and people would have talked, and people would have said, Samuel, he's the guy that, that anointed Saul. That was a bust. Tried to put his sons in leadership. We didn't want them. He put Saul in leadership, and he was lousy. What a judge. What a prophet. Just sort of out to pasture in an inglorious way. Uh, Samuel had already delivered his farewell speech. That's 1 Samuel 12. This is one of the obscure Bible stories that if I could go back and visit, you know, there was an old children's Bible cartoon where people went back in time and watched the Bible stories unfold. This would be one that I'd kind of like to go back and watch, this farewell speech. When you read about it in 1 Samuel 12, the text says there was a thunderstorm while he was giving his farewell speech. And you don't know, was that thunder in the distance? Was it just a downpour in the moment? Had it just passed through? But there was a thunderstorm, and the people were listening. And he talked about his, his character. He talked about Israel's history. He warned them about a king and what it would be like with a king. He told them they were wrong to ask for this king. And the people were terrified, and they begged him to pray. Please pray for us. Pray to the Lord for us. And his sort of parting words where you need to fear the Lord and you need to serve him. And everyone just sort of viewed that as you've given your speech, now you ride off into the sunset. Sort of the end of your ministry fizzled with your sons and with Saul and now you've given this speech and now it's just time to ride off into the sunset. So he'd given this farewell speech. His relationship with Saul had been irreparably fractured. There was a broken relationship between Samuel and Saul, and that caused him to grieve. It hurt him. And you see that in chapter 16, verse 1, the Lord says to Samuel, how long are you going to grieve Saul? Why was he grieving? Well, maybe on a personal level, he was disappointed in Saul. Maybe on a prideful level, he thought the whole thing looked bad on him. Maybe as a a leader in Israel, he he recognized the damage that Saul had caused to the nation. But on all of those levels, or some of those levels, or at least one of those levels, he's grieving this broken relationship with Saul. If you back up into 15, we'll just read a few verses. Some of the, the best verses from Samuel's life. You remember when Saul was fighting the Amalekites, and he was told to kill them all, and he didn't. He left some of the 
livestock alive. He left Agag alive. And if you look at chapter 15, verse 32, Samuel has showed up and Samuel has really lit into Saul. I mean, he has really let him have it. You have not obeyed the Lord and the Lord is angry with you. And Samuel said, verse 32, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Agag came cheerfully. He said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Saul is going to spare my life. Samuel said, as your sword is made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah and Saul went to his house, right? There's this break in the relationship. Saul goes one way, Samuel goes the other way. And look what it says. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But he grieved over Saul. Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So he's given this farewell speech. His relationship with Saul has been broken, which all adds up to this idea. Samuel was probably living in some sort of exile. He's just probably hiding out. You know Saul's character and how he treated his enemies from the David story. Samuel is now an enemy. He's rebuked him, he's publicly shamed him, he's confronted him, he's told him that the Lord is no longer with you and the Lord is angry that, he, uh, that, that you've done these things, he's, he's regretting that he's made you king, and the result is uh, he's probably just on the run, he's probably hiding out, he's probably trying to lay low, he's probably just trying to forget all of the things that have happened and stay out of Saul's way, because when you're the guy that confronts the despot, your head's on the chopping block, right? Think about North Korea. When you speak up, that's the last thing you say. Think about the old days of Iraq with Saddam Hussein and his cronies. When you're the squeaky wheel, that wheel gets eliminated. And Samuel knows that, and so he's probably living in some sort of exile, which leads us to this. Samuel was hesitant to go to Bethlehem. He wasn't quite sure that this was a good idea. His exact words when the Lord sent him was this, How can I go if Saul hears it, he will kill me? If he knows I'm in Bethlehem, he's going to come and I'm dead. I better just stay in hiding. So he's hesitant to go, and the people of Bethlehem were terrified when Samuel walked into town. You see that in verse 5. Or verse 4, where the people of Bethlehem, the elders of the city, come and they meet him and they're trembling and they say, Do you come peaceably? What do they mean by that? They know that Saul is on the throne. They know that Saul is crazy. They know that he will eliminate any threat that rises up against his kingdom. And they see the kingmaker walk into town. Right? A wanted man. Right? The wanted posters are up at the, the post office. And here he comes walking into town. And they're looking at the wanted poster and they're looking at him and they're saying... We're in a tough spot here, Samuel. <laughs> On the one hand, if we receive you, it's like we're aiding and abetting the enemy, right? We're harboring an enemy of the state. Saul wants you dead. If we run you off, that's not great either because then Saul will find out that you were here and we didn't hang on to you. Did you come peaceably? What kind of plans do you have? What are you up to? Why are you here? So Samuel is hesitant. The elders are terrified. And just as a side note, 
You and I don't study ancient Near Eastern geography very much, so when this says he went to Bethlehem, most of us don't really know what to picture. Like, what, what are you supposed to picture in your mind? Is that like me going to Midland, right? I mean, I'm pretty important, but when I go to Midland, no one really notices, right? Traffic doesn't stop. Uh, people don't send out alerts. You just sort of go and you blend in. But this is not like that. This would be more like George W. Bush visiting McCamey, Texas. If W. shows up in McCamey and you're in McCamey, you're going to find out about it pretty quick. You're going to hear about it. You're going to talk about it. Somebody's going to say something. You're going to get a text. You're going to notice the, the Secret Service, the hustle, the bustle, whatever. It's going to be obvious. Samuel is as, as famous as anyone in Israel. And when he comes marching into this little village, don't think city or metropolis or big town. Think village. If you've been to Kenya, think village in Kenya. Small scale. And here comes the most famous man, a wanted man, marching into town. And they're terrified. I think it's fascinating that when Samuel says to the Lord, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord says, okay, insert Landon's footnote. I'm going to give you some cover here. Take a heifer and just tell him you're there to sacrifice. Take a cow, just tell him you're there to kill a cow, offer sacrifice. Don't tell him what you're really there to do. And he shows up and they say, did you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Fingers crossed behind his back. I promise that's all I'm doing. I'm just here to offer sacrifice to the Lord. You don't have any worry with me. I'm no threat to you. This is an interesting scene. It's also interesting because Samuel went to Bethlehem looking for a king who looked like Saul. And I wish I had a great way to explain this to you. I just don't have a great way to explain the fact that Samuel shows up and he's looking for Saul version 2.0. Look at verse 6. He sees Eliab and he thinks that's the one. Oldest, biggest, strongest, capable. Let's do it. Let's anoint him. Nope, that's not him. How about number two? Number two would be Abinadab. Nope. How about Shema? Nope. How about the other sons who aren't even named? Nope. All the way down to where he's got to ask if there's another one. I love how Max Licato describes this. He says the scene has a dog show feel to it. I like that. He examines the boys one at a time like canines on leashes. More than once ready to give the blue ribbon. But each time God stops him. Don't you expect a little more from Samuel? I mean, we've done this with Saul. He was a head taller than everyone in the kingdom. He looked the part of a king, and he was a miserable failure. Miserable. His heart was not loyal to the Lord. And Samuel had to rebuke him on every step. Don't you think Samuel would walk into Bethlehem and say, Okay, Let's have a Bible drill contest and let's see who knows their Bible the best. Or let's play around a Bible Jeopardy with your boys and let's see who can answer the most Bible questions. Or let's, let's talk character. Who's, who has the godliest character in this family? Instead, he just sort of does what everyone else would do, what the world would do. Give me the oldest. We'll take the oldest. Nope, second oldest. Nope, third. We'll just move all the way down the line. There's this great line in here. God does not see as we see. God looks on the heart. And I'm telling you, Samuel should have known that. Hold your spot and look at 1 Samuel 13. 
of all people Samuel should have known. 1 Samuel 13, 13. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Why? The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. He knew what the Lord was seeking. And I just don't have a great explanation for why he walks into Bethlehem looking for the oldest brother. The second oldest brother. Other than to say Samuel was a flawed prophet and a flawed judge. He called the people to be obedient to the Lord. He gave some nice speeches. He did some courageous things. Uh, At times he was exemplary. At other times he wasn't. He tried to put his wicked sons in charge. I can't explain that to you. Why did he think that was a good idea? I don't know. Why did he show up in Bethlehem and try to put the oldest in charge? I can't can't give you a great answer on that, but that's what he went looking for. He went looking for outward appearances. And he had to be reminded, he already knew it, but he had to be reminded God is looking on the heart. The Lord told Samuel to anoint Jesse's youngest son as the next king of Israel. We're looking for the youngest son here. Are all your sons here? Well, there remains yet the youngest. There remains yet the youngest. Isn't it interesting that as you read the story, he doesn't say, well, there is David. David's not here. He just calls him the youngest, the little guy, the runt. David's name doesn't even show up till verse 13, the very last verse in this little section of stories where it says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. That's the point where you know it's David. Up to this point, he's just the guy left out with the sheep, the youngest, the one that they forgot. God choosing David fits a pattern of how God normally deals with human beings. More often than not, he sides with the underdog. That's a biblical theme from beginning to end. God has this preference throughout Scripture for the underdog. In verse 11, when they call him the youngest, the Hebrew word is hakaton. Literally, it means the smallest or the last or the least, as in the least significant. It's not really a term of endearment. It's really a term of derision. There is one more son, but he's really not of much value. And you probably wouldn't be interested in him anyways. The Hakaton. That's how God entered into relationship with the patriarchs, isn't it? When he appeared to Abraham, the idolater, and called him to leave his home and follow him. When Abraham had kids and he picked Isaac over Ishmael. And then when Isaac had kids and he picked Jacob over Esau. In all of these situations, God takes the sort of human conventional wisdom and he just flips it up on its head. And he says, no, I'm not going to use the guy who could take some of the credit for himself. I'm going to use the underdog. I'm going to use the one who, when I use him, I get all the credit for what happens through him. He did that with Jacob's sons. He didn't just go to son number two or son number three. He went to son number four, to Judah. Right? He passes right over all of these older brothers, Reuben. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and he picks Judah, 
the noble brother, right? Wrong. The whoremonger. The liar. And he says, I'm going to use that guy. I'm going to take all of the expectations you have and I'm going to flip it on their head and I'm siding with the underdog. Does it remind you of Jesus and the disciples? I'm not looking for men who are Sadducees or Pharisees. I'm not, I'm not trying to recruit the high priest to my team. I'll just take the guy who's out there fishing. And I'll take one of the tax collectors and one of those crazy zealots, like the guy that won't ever shut up about politics and he's annoying and he's a little bit radical and you're not sure that he's mentally stable, I'll take one of those guys. I'll take all the people you don't expect and those are the people I'll use because when I use them, I'm going to get all the credit for what I do through them. It's absolutely no different with you and me than it was for David or it was for the patriarchs or it was for the apostles. Hold your spot, flip over to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Like, just think about who you are for a second. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And notice he doesn't say none. He just says, not many. Most of you weren't. That's not usually how God operates. Verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Here's the reason. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You don't get to take any credit for what God does in your life or through your life. God gets the credit for that. That's not just Paul talking to the Corinthians. That's all the way back in the David story. Which one of the sons do you want? I don't want the oldest or the second oldest. I don't want any of the usual suspects. I want the no-name guy left out in the field with the sheep. That's the guy that we're going to use. The runt, the hakaton. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. He became wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not only was David a Hakatan, he was a layman with questionable heritage. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, he was a layman. He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't part of the religious establishment in Israel. He wasn't a priest. He didn't have responsibilities at the tabernacle. He was on the outside of all of that. And he had bad blood. He had a, a family tree that people would have looked at and sort of said, well, that's interesting. Look where you come from. You got a, a Moabite in your family tree, David. You know what the Lord says about Moabites? It says they can't enter the assembly of the people. David, you got a, you got a Canaanite prostitute in your family tree. Isn't that interesting, David? And the Lord looks at that situation. He says, this is perfect. I take the person no one expects, no one thinks can be used to do anything great, and that's the one I'll use. And when I use him, I'll get all the credit for it. You meet this character in 1 Samuel 16. He doesn't even get a name till the very last verse where the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David. 
That's the moment he's named. And as you go forward, the Bible will dedicate more than 60 chapters to tell the story of the uninvited, unnamed son of Jesse. It's this massive stretch of story in the Old Testament. For who? Eliab? Nope. Any of the other brothers? Nope. The one they left out in the field. Peterson describes it this way. Election into God's purposes is not by popular vote. Thank God for that. Election into God's purposes is not based on proven ability or potential promise. It's just based on God saying, I'm going to do something great through a nobody. And when I do it, I'm going to get all the credit for it. And this is a really important part of the David story that you've got to get right here. If you can look at the David story through the Old Testament, and you come away thinking, man, David, what a great guy. You're forgetting how it all started. Anything great that David did in his life is not a result of David. It's a result of God doing it in David and through David. Just like you and me today. We don't have anything to boast about before the Lord. All we boast in is what the Lord has done in us and what the Lord is doing through us. You don't look at the David story and put David up on the pedestal. You look at the David story and you put God up on the pedestal. And that's the final point this evening. The story really isn't about Samuel or Jesse or David. The story is about God. It's not about David. It's about what God's going to do using David, the nobody. Robert Bergen says it this way, commentary on 1 Samuel. This chapter is not so much about Samuel and David as it is about God. It portrays the Lord's infinite and effortless superiority to all things human. The ways of the Lord confound even the greatest spiritual intellects and frustrate all earthly forces that would stand in his way. You see God's activity here where the Spirit rushes on David. The Holy Spirit rushed upon David. And I just want you to think with me for a second. I didn't put this on your notes, but I'm going to put a few things up on the screen. I just want you to think about how David's story unfolds in broad strokes from this point forward. Okay? Here's the progression. The Holy Spirit comes upon an unknown shepherd from Bethlehem. Very surprising that that would happen. Then the anointed king, lowercase k, the anointed king battles evil spirits. That's the very next story here where David is in Saul's service and he's got these evil spirits that are tormenting him and David is playing music and the evil spirits are flying away. You think, what a weird story. You're right, it's a weird story. We're going to talk about it, but that's what happens next. What happens next? Well, the anointed king battles a giant, right? This great enemy of God's people who is mocking them and defying them. And then next, before you know it, the sitting king of Israel wants him dead. Wants this little nobody who now is becoming a somebody wants him dead. Look, when you see the broad movement of that story, you should say, you know, that kind of sounds familiar to another story I've read in the New Testament. So look at this. The Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism comes on an unknown carpenter. And where's he from? Oh, Bethlehem. What a coincidence. We read this baptism story and the Holy Spirit comes down. What does he do next? He goes out in the wilderness and the anointed king, big K king, battles evil spirits and even the devil. Right? There's this face-off in the wilderness, this temptation story. 
Before you know it, the sitting king of Israel wants him, Jesus, dead. This story, this David story, is pointing you forward and saying, this is how God works among his people. He looks for a a seeming nobody, and he uses them for his glory and the good of his people in salvation. Everything in the David story is preparing you for the Jesus story. And when you look at this well-known episode from David's life where Samuel comes marching into town, you cannot walk away from this story thinking, Samuel is a great guy. I want to be just like Samuel when I grow up. You look at Samuel and you say, Samuel, what are you doing? And you can't look at Jesse and say, well, Jesse's some great guy because he doesn't even bring David in on the whole thing till the end. He doesn't even name his son in the story. You can't look at Ed David and think he's much of anything either. He's just a nobody. You look at this story and you say, this isn't about what these guys are doing to save Israel. This is about what God is doing to save Israel. And he's going to empower somebody that the world doesn't think much of to defeat the enemies of God's people and bring salvation and rest to his people. And you say, that is exactly the story of Jesus. I'm going to take the son of a virgin. And people looked at him and they said, you know, I'm not quite sure about your lineage. We're not sure about about your mom and your dad and all that thing. We're not sure about your family tree. And God said, I'm going to take the guy you least expect and I'm going to use him. I'm going to empower him with my spirit to bring salvation to his people. This story is pointing you forward to Jesus. We're going to see that every week as we go through David's life.